1 Samuel chapter 4 is the story of what happens to the ark of the Lord. Um, we, we just heard from John chapter 1 that no one has ever seen God. Because in, in, in our sinfulness, if we were to see God face to face, he would immediately respond to our sin and, and we would not live anymore. And so, for most of history, uh, God was hidden from humanity and would only appear to his people through what's called the ark, which was a piece of furniture that I want you to know before we read God's word, this piece of furniture that held the tablets of God in his covenant that, that had the mercy seat where the blood was shed for him to live with his people, that this ark of God represents God himself. This is what's important as we read First Samuel is this piece of furniture is a representation of God. That's why what we'll see at the end of the chapter is that the glory of God himself is represented with what happens to the ark. So what I want you to pay attention to as we read 1 Samuel chapter 4, and you can stand if you're able, because we're about to read 1 Samuel chapter 4. What I want you to pay close attention to is what is it that the people of God do with God? What do they do with the ark? What do they do with God? And then how does that turn out for them? 1 Samuel Chapter 4, you see in verse 1, and the word of Samuel came to all Israel. And then Israel finds themselves in a battle with the Philistines. And in verse 2, the, the Philistines come up to battle and then they kill 4,000 of men of God's people on the field of battle. Then we read in verse 3, and when the people came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. So the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the ark of the covenant of the Lord of hosts who is enthroned on the cherubim. He is there in the ark. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. As soon as the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout so that the earth resounded. And when the Philistines heard this noise of the shouting, they said, what does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And when they learned that the Ark of the Lord had come to the camp, the Philistines were afraid, for they said, a God has come into the camp. And they said, woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us, who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods. These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. Take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves of the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So the Philistines fought and Israel was defeated. And they fled everyone to his home. And there was a very great slaughter for 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell. And the ark of God was captured and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas died. 
A man from Benjamin ran from the battle line and came to Shiloh that same day with his clothes torn and with dirt on his head. When he arrived, Eli was sitting on his seat by the road watching for his heart trembled for the ark of God. And when the man came into the city and told the news, all the city cried out. When Eli heard of the the sound of the outcry, he said, what is this uproar? Then the man hurried and came and told Eli. Now, Eli was 98 years old and his eyes were set so that he could not see. And the man said to Eli, I am he who has come from the battle. I fled from the battle today. And he said, how did it go, my son? He who brought the news answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines. And there has also been a great defeat among the people. Your two sons also, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead. And the ark of God has been captured. As soon as he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell over backward from his seat by the side of the gate. And his neck was broken and he died. For the man was old and heavy. He had judged Israel 40 years. Now his daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas, was pregnant and about to give birth. And when she heard the news that the ark of God was captured and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed and gave birth for her pains came upon her. And about the time of her death, the woman, the women attending her said to her, do not be afraid for you have borne a son. But she did not answer or pay attention. And she named the child Ichabod, saying, the glory has departed from Israel because the ark of God has been captured and because her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, the glory has departed from Israel for the ark of God has been captured. Beloved, this is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. I want to talk to you this morning about the folly of using God for personal gain. The folly of using God for personal gain. One thing that the Bible makes very clear is that God is useful. When a nation was experiencing genocide and harsh slavery, they cried out and God came and rescued them. When Israel needed a home, God gave it to them. God, even in the presence of the ark, the ark that they carried through the nation of Canaan, the lands of Canaan, even to the battle of Jericho, the ark was with them and God defeated their enemies for them. God is useful. And you need to know About the folly of using him. For personal gain. What. Provoked God's people in first Samuel four to call out and to turn to God and ask to go 
get him the, in the ark and bring him to their battle. What, what provoked them to do this was their personal gain. They had been losing the battle. And because they didn't want to lose any more, they used him. Go get him and bring him to us. And using God is foolish. And if we're not careful, friends, using God is very easy to do. Let me give you the sermon in a sentence. This is what 1 Samuel 4 is teaching us this morning. Put your gain above God's name and you'll be sorry. Put your gain above God's name and you will be sorry. God's name. God's person. God's glory as it is described in verse 22 with the the, the name Ichabod. The glory has departed. His name is a synonym for him. And we need to understand that God's name, his reputation is so very important to God. And we need to learn from this story, which ends with every single person in the story is sorry. They're all devastated. By what transpires in the chapter. And you may have some confusion about why this went the way that it did, why they are so sorry. But I want to, as we get into the text, I want you to consider this question throughout this passage. And that is, what do you think God is useful for? Think about this. When you think of God being useful, what is it you're thinking about? I want to give you the lay of the land. Uh, We have, first of all, in, in verses 1 through 11, how God's people use God in battle. And then in the second half of the passage is in verses 12 through 22, After God's people use him in battle, how is it that the survivors feel back at home? So that's how we'll walk through the passage. Point number one. We see in verses one through eleven. Use God, lose God. Point number one. Use God. Lose God. We're. Normally going through the book of Revelation, we're just dropping in uh, to first Samuel. So you should know this is a time when God's people are very concerned with personal gain. This is the time in history we're told in, at the end of the book of Judges that there's no king in Israel. There's no good leaders in Israel. And therefore, the people are doing whatever is right in their own eyes. People are just deciding for themselves what to do and how to live. There, there are people who are focused upon personal gain. And you see that in this passage. The whole nation, the, the, the army there, 
is using God for the personal gain of protection. That's why in verses two and three, when they're losing the battle, they don't want to lose anymore. And so even though they're saying, why is the Lord defeating us? Why is the Lord not giving us victory? They do the wrong thing. They treat him like he's just a rabbit's foot or some lucky emblem just to go fetch and bring. Because of some superstitious way to approach God, bring him in and then we'll be guaranteed they're using God for personal protection. But they've been led to live like this. Because the priests that carry the ark of God in, in verse 4, live like this. Hophni and Phinehas, the, the, the sons of Eli, are using God for personal gain. And for them, it's the gain of pleasure. I want you to notice... The focus in verse four. So the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there. Notice how precious is this furniture, the ark and the way that it's described elaborately there. The ark of the covenant. God's special relationship with Israel of the Lord of hosts. There is no other God like our God. He's all powerful. He has a host of angels at his disposal. You would think if you bring in this God who's got a covenant with us, who's got all power, who is not far off, but is enthroned on the cherubim in the ark. That this is a guaranteed win for them. But then the words come and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas. We're there with the ark. That may mean nothing to you, but let, let me just turn back to chapter two and look at who these priests, these men of God who were supposed to be holy and leading God's people in holiness. Chapter two, look in verse 15 at what these priests are doing. People are bringing the, the, these offerings to the priests and and the way that they were supposed to bring this offering is uh, they would bring some meat to God and say the fat is for God because the fat is so very numbers. Y'all know this. It's delicious. It smells good. It tastes good. And so when you offer meat to God, you give him the fat. But before the fat could be given to the Lord, the priest said, that's for me. It's too yummy. I'm taking it for myself. They're wicked and they're only focused on their own pleasure, their personal gain. It says in verse 17, thus, the sin of these young men was very great in the sight of the Lord, for the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. They took for themselves what belonged only to God, and they're the ones carrying in the ark. It also says, look, look, look down in verse uh, 22. Eli was very old. That's that's their father, the priest and judge. And he kept hearing all that his sons, the priests were doing to all of Israel and how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance to the tent of meeting. These men who were called to bring in the ark, 
who are carrying God into battle are men who use their position to prey on women and use them for their pleasure. This is a people who are focused on personal gain. So when you read in verse three, their acknowledgement that God must be against them and that's why they're losing. And when you read in verse five, how excited they are that the ark of God has finally come. Do not read honor in them. Do not mistake what they're doing, even if you can understand why it is that they would want God there. They are disobeying and dishonoring the God that they're saying they're worshiping. I wonder if they were shocked at what ends up happening in verse 10 when God's finally on the battlefield and now they've gone from 4,000 people dying to now 30,000 people dying. You got to wonder, would they be able to even understand what went wrong? When the people hear in verse 13 what has happened on the battlefield once the ark finally came and the, and the, the whole city cries out in sorrow. Would they have been able to understand what went wrong? Or would they conclude that their God cannot be relied upon? Cannot help them when they need help? Well, I want to give you a clue as to what's going on in this passage. It's way up in verse 1 of chapter 4 when it says the word of Samuel came to all of Israel. You see, the word of God through the prophet Samuel was just now coming to the people of God. In chapter 3, verse 1, it said that the, the vision of God and the word of God was rare in those days. They had been without direction. They've been living their life without God's word. And so when they are being defeated, they know the one that they should turn to is the Lord, and yet they're doing it in a wrong way. They're doing it without the guidance of God's word, which if they had been paying attention in chapter two, God revealed to Eli, I'm going to kill both your sons in one day. And God revealed to Eli, there is nothing that's going to stop me from punishing the nation of Israel and particularly Eli and his sons because they blasphemed God and his father, the father Eli, did not stop them from their sin. God's word told them this was going to happen. But they did not listen. And so let me just say, how precious is God's word? We do not have any idea how holy God is or how unholy people can approach him without God telling us, but he tells us how. Their problem in 1 Samuel 4 was just how very long they had gone without God. 
how very long they had gone without God's word. The fact that they had only leaders who were not leading according to God's word. They were leading according to their own pleasure and gain. And it led them to tragic defeats. Their leaders weren't giving the word to God's people. So listen to me. Your Bible reading. Let me say this in January where you may still be holding on to resolutions. Your Bible reading is not just a personal goal for you or me. It's not like losing a few pounds. It's not like a goal of finishing a half marathon. The Bible, what God tells us about himself and about us and what we need is our life. And we will be devastated if we leave it. How precious is the gift of the word of God? How kind is God to reveal himself to the very people who have offended him? To tell us how we can have real gain. How we can avoid real pain. They used God and they lost God. Verse 11 says, the Philistines captured the ark of God and took it back to their country. I realize um, I'm a certain kind of man. And there's other men in here, a different kind of man. Um, I'm going to give you another one of these stories where I'm showing just how different kind of man I am. And I'm not I'm not proud of it. Uh, I'm not proud of it. I don't know what you were thinking of when 9-11 happened, but I can tell you what I was thinking of when 9-11 happened. I was thinking, am I too old for the draft? I've aged out of the draft, right? They're not going to make me go there and fight these bad guys, are they? I was. This is what I was thinking. This is. You can laugh. You, you may just be ashamed of me, but I did not want to go to battle. You know, some of you would have signed up and gone right away. Um, the country was better off for not sending me. But there, l- listen. There is something worse than war. There is something worse than war. There's something worse than losing 4,000 of your own people to another nation. And it is using God for personal gain. Because when they did that, they lost 30,000. It got worse for them. Now, this passage, I think most directly is a call to every Christian leader because it's, it's the leaders who are especially in view. It's Hophni and Phinehas, the priest. It's Eli as their father, the priest. It's, it's, it's their leadership that really led to this kind of situation. It is a call to every Christian who is in any kind of leadership. It's a call to preachers and pastors. It's a call to elders. It's a call to missionaries. It's a call to anyone who has any kind of influence over other believers on behalf of God. Sunday school teachers, you can, you can apply this to, to leaders. Not, do not use your position for personal gain. But it goes beyond this. There's a lesson here for every one of us. There's a lesson here for husbands and fathers not to use God for your gain. Do not use the Bible. And your position that God has granted to you to pressure the people who are under you to do something that would dishonor him. 
They don't even know how to treat God. And so they cart him in like he's some rabbit's foot, like he's some genie to them. Because they've been poorly led. Do not use any influence God gives to you to influence anybody to do anything that would dishonor God. Do not use any position you have. To call other people, listen to me, do not use any position you have that God has granted to you, whether you're in a school, on a sports team, in a home, in your neighborhood, any voice you're given, do not ever use it to call people's attention to serve you and not God. That's what the priest did with the women. That's what the priest did with the people of God. No, give it to me and not God, it is deadly serious. And beloved, there is a fine line between even being someone like God's people here who recognize they're in a moment where they need God. There's a fine line between needing God and using him. It is so dangerous to put your gain above God's name, and yet it is very easy. To put yourself above God. It is very easy for selfish sinners to do this. How easy is it? To put your life above God's name. How easy is it for you to make sure you do everything to protect your physical and monetary interests? And yet you so easily will neglect God. You can put your work easily, can't we, before even talking to God or hearing from God or serving God. We may not have the ark of God like they did, but we can just as easily use him and ignore him. For some, we can focus on our personal gain very subtly. Where it's not so much the things that we're using God to get us something. But we're focusing on our own gain by being so preoccupied with our pain. With not getting something. With the things in our life that we would want changed. And we get so focused upon that. We wish we had gain. And all we're focused on is the pain we experience. That we give no thought to God. We don't give any thought to his word. Or honoring him or pleasing him. Because we're just too hurt. Beloved, if you do that, you're going to be sorry. When they lost here. They should not have used God. It was an opportunity for them to slow down and say, now, where are we wrong with God? And how has he told us to now approach him again? So here's the test. To guard you from 
using God for personal gain because it's so very easy to do. Here, here's, a, here's a test. Are you the point of your prayers? Are you asking for that thing just for you? Are, do you, do you use, are you reading the Bible to get him to do something for you? Are you giving money in hopes that he will keep some pain from you? Are you serving the elderly just ultimately for you? Are you volunteering at church to get him to do something? Adults can do this and try to get God on the hook for their job. To bless something of their work. Kids can do this. I remember doing this as a kid. I had no God in my life. But I tried to use God to get get things. To get a certain grade. Or to get some spot on a team that I wanted. You can do this in marriage. You can. You can if you're not careful. You'll, you'll start to use the things that you should be doing to honor God. And you'll use them ultimately to do something in a relationship in your life. There are all kinds of ways that we are inclined sinfully to use God for our gain, to protect ourselves, to please us something. And you need to know from 1 Samuel 4 that using him is not just foolish, it is offensive to him. If it is purely for self. In 1 Samuel They wanted an emblem of God. They were not very concerned with God. They had forgotten who he was. So let me ask you. And prayerfully ask this. Would you be happy. With appearing to know God. Looking like you know God, if it means you get everything you want. While not actually getting him. They are sorry. They use God. And then they lose God. And yet I, I don't assume that everyone in here see would be sorry about losing God. So let me keep going in 1 Samuel 4 and tell you they're sorry because they understand if you lose God, you lose everything. Verses 12 through 22, lose God, lose everything. I want you to imagine if you... Are the loved one of some soldier who's at war. Or some of you can imagine. Caring about someone who's in in a kind of job that's dangerous and what you would dread most. Is the message that this man from Benjamin carries with him in verse 12. I want you to imagine. How devastating it would be. To hear 30,000 of of the people who you associate with are dead. It's hard to imagine more pain than if among the dead 
is, is your spouse or your own child. And I want you just to learn from this. There is something worse than even losing your dearest loved one. And that is losing God. Notice what it is that causes Eli to die. He's he's told. In chapter four. And. Verse 17, that the Israel has. Retreated from battle. And then he's told they were defeated greatly. And then he was told his two sons were dead. But it's not until he hears about the ark of God being captured that he falls down dead. I want you to understand that there is there is probably like when you have a newborn child, the, the, these people who are comforting the woman, this, this wife of one of Eli's sons, when she gives birth, they, they, they have a reason to think that it will cheer them up that she has this newborn child. And, and, and you can imagine going through all kinds of sadness and, and what kind of comfort a, a baby who, who needs you, who loves you, is depending upon you, would, would bring to you even in great sorrow. But there is a sadness that children, even babies, cannot comfort. And that sadness is losing God. And, and this woman who is absolutely devastated and it's emphasizing the text is emphasizing the thing she's most sad about is not her father in law dying. It's not her husband dying. It is she's repeating that the ark of God, that God himself had been lost. And beloved, this is a woman who found Phineas attractive. Who thought Phineas was a prize. But even she knows if you lose God, you lose everything. She is so, so sorry. You want to know what hell is? It's losing God. I don't mean that hell is going to be the absence of God. I mean, hell is going to be the presence of God with no hope of his kindness. The presence of God with not even a hint of all the blessings, all the mercy that he gave you throughout your entire life, but you refuse to honor him. Hell will be him lifting all of that and just pouring out judgment. If you lose God, you lose everything. And that is pictured in all the loss of life. You lose God, you lose you. Eli dies. This woman dies. It's pictured in the hopelessness. Once God is gone, then every single person who finds out about that is sorry for using him for personal gain. First Samuel 4 is all sorrow. 
Ichabod, where is the glory? Where is God? They've lost everything. Listen, if you lose God, what hope could you possibly have? And yet there is hope. Because God is still God. And God is after his name, even when his people have neglected his name for so long. See, we need, we're just going through chapter four, but we need to peek into chapter five to see what happens when God's glory leaves. What happens when the, these enemies take God into, it says in, in, in chapter five, verses one through five, their great God's temple. They, they bring God in chapter five in the first few verses into the temple of Dagon, which is their great God. And they mean to use the Israelites, God, our God, as if he's going to now be a priest who serves and bows down to day God and 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 God overnight when no one's looking decapitates Dagon. And cuts off his hands. And cuts off his trunk and they show up and all that is left. Is like the chest of the statue of their great God. And you know what the text says? All that was left was Dagon. Which means all that was left was all that there ever was. No God. And then the, the in, in, in chapter 5 and verse 6, to answer the question, where is the glory? Chapter 5 and verse 6 answers the question with the word heavy, which is the word glory. The hand of the Lord was glorious. Against his enemies. And then in chapter 5 and verse 11. We have that word heavy again. Which is the same word as Ichabod or glory. Chapter 5 and verse 11 says. They sent therefore and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines. And said send away the ark of the God of Israel. And let it return to its own people. That it may not kill us and our people. For there was a deathly panic throughout the whole city. The hand of God was very glorious there. That's where the glory is. It's with God and it always is. And that is good news. Individuals can lose God. But God will never lose anything. God will always be glorious. And he ends up returning to his people in first Samuel after he conquers his enemies by himself. No one carrying him. God returns to his people. And you know what? It's not very long before he's taken away from them again. Because they still. Are putting themselves above him. I wonder, have you been able to see. How concerned God is for his name. And how offended he is when the people he made to worship him are just concerned for their own gain. And I wonder if you can. See good news in God. Putting his name first. 
whenever Jesus Christ came into the world, we were told God had come to tabernacle among us. That he was this new ark, this new presence of God. To see Jesus is to see God's glory, that this glory that they lost, that when we see Jesus, we see glory. He is like this ark in First Samuel in, in multiple ways. Jesus was used for personal gain. He had a disciple who sold him to his enemies. He had a priest who was jealous over him and handed him over to be killed. There was a king who was in Jesus's place on Israel's throne and he mocked him. And there was a foreign ruler. Who in order to keep his position in Rome and to keep the peace, he crucified Jesus. Jesus is like the ark, but Jesus is greater than the ark. Jesus is not just some piece of furniture. He is God in the flesh. But he's also not just God, he's, he's man. He's the man that we should have leading us in 1 Samuel chapter 4. He's the man who puts God's name above his own gain. And even when Jesus faced danger of his own life, he still would not gain for himself, but he gave himself on the cross. There's good news that 1 Samuel 4 is pointing us to because whenever God falls into the hands of his enemies, we learn from 1 Samuel 4 and how it goes on that that's when the fight is just beginning. And whenever Jesus falls into the hands of his enemies, what God does with him and what God does through him is good news. God exalted Jesus after man killed him. God raised him from the dead to make him savior to anyone who would trust in him. So listen. If you're here and you are someone who can by God's grace, recognize right now that you've been living for your gain. You've been living for your name and you have not considered God. And you recognize just how sinful and guilty you are and how much danger you are before God. Listen to me. You've got to do more than the Philistines did. The Philistines recognized that when God's ark came in, that they had to be sober and recognize that this was God and that he was all powerful. You've got to do more than that. They did not honor him as God. They did not live for his name. Because you can come in here and say, I'm going to go to this church and not the Jehovah's Witness church or a Mormon church or a Buddhist temple or whatever, because I recognize that Jesus is a God. You've got to do more than that. You've got to recognize more than just that he's a God. You can recognize that Jesus is who he says he is, and you can still lose everything. Because Jesus says... Anyone who is ashamed of me, anyone who does not live for me as their purpose, when I return, I will be ashamed of you and I will not save you before God. See, there's a greater danger that Jesus brings us to if we do not honor his name than anything that they were dealing with, just physical life that can end. This is eternity we're talking about. You need to turn to him as the Lord of Lords and live for his name above everything else. And here's the good news. 
If you do that. What God did in the death of his son is he shed blood that he would accept. And give mercy to anyone who trusts him. So if you turn to him. The new ark, the new mercy seat, his own blood shed for sinners will be enough to forgive you of everything. The question is, what are you going to do? You've got to make a choice in whether you're going to use God for your own personal gain. Or you're going to put his name. Above. Your own. Jesus says, if anyone. Comes after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Will you deny yourself? Will you not make you the point of your life? And even stand against yourself wherever it comes in the way of God's name. Your aim has to be not your gain, but whatever pleases Jesus. And you do not have to be a fool. Believing in Jesus actually turns fools into into the wise. We we actually do put God's name above everything else. Faith can turn people into Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's who are facing their own death and say, look, my God can rescue me from your hands. But even if he doesn't, I'm not going to bow to you. Faith in Jesus changes us into people like Jim Elliott, who really believe he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. We cannot keep this life. There's no reason living for gain in this life. And it, but if we give up our life for Jesus, we will gain something we can never lose. Faith says, I don't have to worry about me and my gain because God has me in, under his control. I am totally free just to live for him. Beloved, I just want you to consider in closing. How Jesus' pain on the cross, his death for us, has led to more gain than we could ever have hoped for. And how his death for us should compel us to do everything for his sake. If you will. You may face suffering, you may face sadness, but you will never be sorry. Oh God, we thank you for your word and we pray that you would cause it to be fruitful. That you would cause us to believe that we would not be the fools who use you for ourselves, but we serve you with all of our lives. God, would you be pleased to use us to make a name for yourself? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.